There's this magical island paradise floating amidst the sapphire waves of the Mediterranean Sea, and that's the subject of today's episode. Sicily is this large island off the coast of Italy. Its landscape is beautifully diverse. It's got beaches, volcanoes, ancient ruins, archaeological sites, these brown roof villas, and churches with tall round steeples. From above, these many buildings line the streets and have this, this cozy feeling. They reflect the people that live there, incredibly family and community oriented, surrounded by beauty and danger. They are a diverse group that come together over thousands of years of adversity. I'm Scott Parrish, and you're listening to Dying to Eat. Each episode, we'll be focusing on a different country or culture and exploring the relationship between food and death around the world. If you love food, culture, and fun stories, I've got a great show in store for you. Make sure to stay around to the end so you can learn what's cooking this week. So Sicily. It's a vibrant place full of festivals, food, poetry, plays, lively celebrations, and soul for mourning. Today, Sicily is a region of Italy, and for context, it's that part being kicked by the boot. As you're about to discover, this would turn out to be morbidly pretentious. Sicily's culture, however, is very divergent from the rest of Italy because of its remote location and lengthy pre-Italian history. Sicily's history goes all the way back to the pre-modern era. We're talking 12,000 BC or, you know, about 14,000 years ago. As far as scholars can tell, there's three separate tribes of people that migrated to the island around the same time. There's people from mainland Italy, people from Troy. Yeah, those are the ones I call Helen's Bunch. That's now part of Turkey. And people from Iberia. Now, Iberia is this area that's divided between Portugal and Spain now. These groups shared the island in relative peace for a long time. It's a beautiful place full of natural resources and it's located smack dab in the middle of a bunch of trade routes. So obviously, everyone didn't stay friendly. Everything was going pretty well until the Fire Nation, or you might know them as the Phoenicians, attacked. Then the Carthaginians invaded, and a lot of battles ensued. This was around 300 or 400 AD, and it marked the beginning of a tumultuous journey for the islanders. A few hundred years later came the Greeks, then the Romans, and both of these invasions left a lot, long, long-lasting impact on the island that you can still see today in the ruins and the architecture. The Romans and the Greeks continued to vie for control of the island until the early Middle Ages. Then the Germans and the Byzantines took this age-old struggle to a next level, which was called the Gothic War. Now, I know it sounds pretty cool, and it probably sounds like a bunch of people all dressed in black, standing around sneering at each other. Trust me. Just not that cool. After Sicily was invaded through the armies of the Gothic War, the Muslims invaded. And this comprised of people from all over the Middle East. There were Arabs, there were Persians, Berbers, and Sarsarians. Next came the Vikings, as they caught wind of the free fall and decided that they wanted part of the action. Then in the high Middle Ages, the Normans invaded. Then the Germans decided to come back and they invaded all over again. This turned out to be a really bad move because you see, 
The Catholic Church was really entrenched in Sicily by this time, and the tensions between the church and the monarch were pretty high. The Germans took care of that little problem by assassinating the monarch, and then they placed their own guy on the throne. Well, the church really didn't like the new guy, so they overthrew him. They killed him, and they put a new monarch in his place. The TLDR on that is Sicily in that era just wasn't a good place to be the king. So the king of the church installed was so unpopular with the citizens of the island that they mounted an insurrection. They formed this militia faction called the uh, Sicilian Vespers, and they elected their own king. So, yep, that's right. Sicily had two kings for a while. And as a side note, if you think Sicilian Vespers sounds like a cool band name, you're right. And I checked. It's already taken. So, this whole two kings thing was eventually settled when the Aragonians... So what do you think, Pete? Did I say it right that time? So the Aragonians invaded. And if you're thinking it's those guys from the video game, no such luck. And they didn't have any dragons either, so bummer. But the Aragonians invaded, followed by the Spanish, then the Bourbons of France. Invaded by Bourbon. <laughs> I'm going to have to use that one again, I think. Okay, okay. That's a lot of invasions. And surely you'd think that things settled down by the early 1800s, right? Nope. That's when the Italians came in. The Italian invasion faced a whole lot of rebellion from the, from the Sicilian people. And it gave rise to, wait for this, the Sicilian Mafia. We all know who those guys are, right? The Mafia's roots can be traced back to the Middle Ages. But at this point, they became really prominent in everyday life in Sicily because they were staunchly anti-Italian. The 1900s brought even more turmoil when Mussolini and his fascist regime took over Italy, followed by the start of World War II. A whole lot of battles were fought in Sicily during the war, and the island struggled to survive uh, after everything was over. The economy of the island was completely devastated. By then, the Sicilian people had become extremely resilient. They worked tirelessly to rebuild, and they focused on exports. So they exported things like art, textile, food products like grapes, olives, and meats. As the world began to recover, Sicily became really known for its hospitality. And then tourism grew. The beauty of the history and the history of the island were shared by countless visitors from all over the world. As a meeting place for so many cultures, the final resting place uh, for so many is just part of its history. And Sicily has a really deep relationship with the dead. As I said earlier, Catholicism spread through Sicily pretty early. So it had a huge role in reshaping many of the customs and traditions uh, that the original Sicilian islanders had. I mentioned the Mafia earlier, and while I'm sure you agree Sicily has many interesting historical and cultural features the mafia is something that always stands out because that's what we know you know you flip through news headlines or you watch the movies and and that's that's what we hear we hear Sicily we think mafia and a prime example of this would be the image of the mafia restaurant wars in the 1920s so picture this 
a mafia boss is sitting down to dinner with his family and suddenly this car screeches by this big window and it rains out bullets all over the dinner party. Sometimes it's for revenge, sometimes it's as a warning, but always it ended in tra tragedy. Now if that sounds oddly specific, then you should know it was a fairly common occurrence in New York and in Sicily for quite a while back in that era. For inquiring minds, some of the notable mobsters that were on the receiving end were Joe the Boss, Macera, Crazy Joe Gallo, Carmine Galantina, Paul Castellan, and Willie Moretti. Now, if I mispronounced any of those names, please forgive me. I'm not Sicilian. I'm just trying to give you the right information here. Now, what I really do want you to see here is the economic crisis that followed the World War II hit Sicily really, really hard. It widened the gap between the wealthy mafia and the poor everyday folks. The maf mafia, they took their ill-gotten gains and they bought land really cheap. Then they leased it back to the, the citizens at um, you know jacked up prices. Since food service and related industries are the first to bounce back in economic recoveries, then this gave the mafia the opportunity to entrench themselves in, in that um, in, in those businesses, and they invested in restaurants and wineries and hotels and farms and things of that that nature. So the takeaway here is when your landlords the mafia, then there's always strings attached. Tenants were forced to buy everything they needed from the Mafia suppliers. They had to hire Mafia members, and sometimes the business owners would have to be part of the money laundering. And, you know, that made it difficult for those guys that wanted to be on the straight and narrow to reach out to authorities because they were implicated. So, if you happen to run a business or own a business that wasn't mafia owned then hey they expected you to pay that pay was called piso or protection money this protection money was supposed to be like an insurance to keep you safe from rival gangs but if you chose not to pay then they could wreck your business they could beat you up and in some cases they even threaten your family so here's the thing in sicily family is everything so threats of any kind aren't taken lightly. And most of the mafia is organized around families. Unlike a lot of other ideological uh, groups that we talk about through history. And any arguments in these, these crime families, they were resolved by high-ranking family members. And most of the time, the disagreements, uh, they were kept in the family. When it came to the feuds between people that weren't related, then that's when it really got more out of hand. Think back in high school. Do you remember reading Romeo and Juliet? You know that battle between the Montagues and the Capulets? Kind of that same idea. So, for a long time, Sicily, it, it, it looked like a it just looked like a war zone uh, within its own borders. And when it got out of hand, it, it really got out of hand. According to one prominent Sicilian historian, 
There seems to have been only one effective way to bring peace between families. An intermediary brought the heads of the two families together. And if he was successful in his mission, then everybody drank together, and then, then one would um, agree to serve as a godfather to the next-born child of the other man. Basically, if you didn't want an all-out bloodbath, what you did was you toast, you made up, and you got your families connected. These are the circumstances that set the stage for the drive-by shootings and the other violent crimes that you see happening in the Sicilian restaurants and the movies. As you can probably imagine, citizens really got tired of all that stuff, and uh, they were literally getting caught up in the crossfire. So, uh, an anti-mafia grassroots movement began, and... After a while, more and more businesses began to pay the piso. Now, as a note here, the mafia is still around, and this stuff is still happening. This is just part of the history. So, think about this. They stood up to the they stood up to the mafia, and that put their not just their businesses, but they put their families and they put their lives in danger. But sure enough, there were a few brave guys that really stood up. And if you go visit Sicily today, then tourist companies, um, they can guide you to hotels and eateries and attractions that are not mafia-owned. Believe me, it's a good bet versus the possibility of getting shot while you're sitting around enjoying a cup of coffee. So, side note. There's been a concentrated effort with the authorities and the citizens of Italy over the past few decades to refuse to pay the Piso. This citizens group is actually called Goodbye Piso, and it's been instrumental in uh, really loosening the grip of, of the mafia on the Sicilian people. Now, as a side side note, if your tastes are more adventurous and you want to try a notorious, notorious mafia restaurant, Cologne in Paris was opened by the daughter of that notorious gangster of the same name. I think I just said notorious twice in the same sentence. Forgive me. And talking about great coffee, I hear Cologne's has great coffee. If you try it, drop a line let me know. So, between the wars, the invasions, the mafia, how do the Sicilians deal with all that loss? The answer is actually as diverse and interesting as everything else in Sicily. To understand, we have to go back and we have to look at the island itself. One of the island's most interesting archaeological features are the Greek burial and communion sites left over from their early invasions. Unlike the natives, the Greeks, especially the Athenians, cremated their dead. They stored the ashes in these decorative urns that were either buried or kept by the family, or they kept them in these communal spaces where people would come and mourn and, and visit the ashes. These events were usually featured women that were stationed around a, uh, a clay cooking pot where they'd make soup or porridge or some other comfort food and they'd sort, serve the mourning people as they, uh, as they visited the past. The practice of cremation never transferred to the native Sicilians, though they did adapt the tradition of having community meals after, after funerals. And we're going to get to that death feast in just a minute.
Another funerary re relic of the uh, island's history is the catacombs attached to the Catholic churches of Sicily. They were built starting in the late 1700s all the way up to the early 1900s. And they hold the mummified remains of wealthy citizens and church officials. The method they used to mummify the bodies is somewhat unusual. And there was a study in 2007 called the Sicily Mummy Project that uh, focused specifically on this burial technique. During the process, the bodies are drained and they're stuffed with uh, plant material. So your Sicilian grandma might be full of old leaves and straws and nuts and fruits, unlike my Tennessee grandma, who was stuffed with whiskey. By the way, for anybody that follows me very long, we call her OCG, and I love her very much. But we'll get to that story some other time. So the, the stuffing, it, it helps keep the body shaped. Afterward, these mummies are stored and sometimes are even displayed so that when people come to visit, you know, loved ones or worshipers, uh, they could actually visit and commune with, with that person. Sometimes, uh, especially if the mummies were children, then offerings would be left. And if it was a child, then it would be something tiny, like a little toy or sweets or fruits or something along that line. So, let me ask you, is it even possible to talk about this island and not mention the Godfather? Alright, have you watched it? If you haven't, Stop right now, go binge the entire, I don't know, it's got to be, it's got to be six or eight hours long. You got to see it. The, there, this is absolutely one of the greatest movie franchises in history. And second, modern Sicilian funerals, they looked a lot like the ones in that movie. Sans the Ambush, of course. So the Sicilian funerals often begin with this open casket wake and it's usually hosted at the family home or at the local mortuary. And afterwards, pallbearers, they lift the casket and they lead this procession to the cemetery, followed by friends and family and musicians. They all kind of follow them in a, in a path. And uh, following the, the strict Catholic discipline, which by the way, is another cool band name. And when I was a teenager, I used to listen to them, super punk. So following the, the strict Catholic discipline, the uh, a mass would be held and it would be in honor of the deceased. And at the end, it was marked by what's called shaking of the hands. And shaking of the hands is exactly what it sounds like. Everybody shakes everybody else's hand. And it's a way to help the community feel unified and it's a way for them to show support of the family of the deceased but after the shaking of the hands it's time to party now in many parts of the world especially in catholic traditions funerals are very solemn events guests are normally pretty quiet and reflective and i know it sounds like it could be at odds to have a bunch of live music and even livelier celebration after the funeral the thing to understand about the sicilians is they celebrate life and 
when you pass on, they hold that celebration to honor that person that they lost. The soundscape of a Sicilian funeral is actually a really beautiful thing. It begins with the ringing of the bells. You may be familiar with uh, John Dunn's poem that ends in um, Send not to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. In Sicily, the ringing of the church bells to commemorate a life is actually is actually very complex. Everything from the type of the bell to the size of the bell is relevant. The number of times that it's rung and the tempo that it's rung tells the region, the gender, the age, even the social status of the person that died. Then you have the lamenters. They're into a class of their own. They will wail, they'll scream and weep really high volumes. They sing and they chant, they recite poetries, they pray, they cry out these stories of the deceased and talk about trials and tribulations. Now, for me, that's a really good reason right there to, to live a good life because if someone's going to start yelling out my trials and tribulations, I want a good story. This lamenting is so important to the grieving process that if you're from a wealthy family in Sicily, then uh, professional lamenters may even be hired. So another thing that's interesting about the lamenters is they're really actually very popular at festivals and at some uh, holiday celebrations. So Easter, for example. The festival's held, and one of the main events is this theatrical funeral to commemorate the, the death of Christ. The pallbearers carry this empty casket, and they're followed by mus musicians and lamenters, and at the end, it culminates where they stop, culminates into this huge Easter festival. So whether it's a proper funeral or theatrical uh taking then lamenting is really proud and soulful and i'm sure it's obvious that it's pretty exhausting as well and it's always followed up by that celebration of life for the fallen person now traditionally the immediate family of the deceased doesn't do any other cooking instead the community gathers together and they bring what's called a consolation or consolo and Consolo is like this big potluck. The family leaves the doors of their home open for a couple of days, and people, they just kind of mill in and mill out. Visitors pay their respect, everyone eats, and when you're talking about the Consolo, you're talking about more heavy comfort foods. And Now, they may be complimented with fruits and cured meats and cheeses and wines, but that's when you're going to get your real good Sicilian dishes. So, don't forget. Hold on. That's pretty good. <laughs> so, not to forget the past loved ones, on November 1st of every year, the Sicilians celebrate um, All Saints Day. Specifically, this holiday is to recognize a lot of uh, Catholic uh, saints. And it's festive, and yeah, it's a little solemn. On November 2nd, they follow it with what's called All Souls Day, which is more like a Sicilian Day of the Dead. It's a day that's um, 
really playful and people get out and have a lot of fun and they head down to the cemeteries with little offerings and these red candles to to visit their past loved ones and celebrate the lives again do you see where the theme is there it's always about a celebration of life now that morning the morning of um, all souls day the kids wake up and they find sweets and they find fruits that are supposedly left by their past ancestors. Yeah, that's kind of weird to me too, but you know, that's their thing. I guess it's kind of like the Easter Bunny, but you know, with their dead relatives. So, let's one-up that explanation with uh, some of the sweets are sculpted to look, and they're painted so that they look like eyes, and they have these cookies that they look like bones. So there's this book that I used to read to my kids. It's got this blue furry puppet in it. And the whole book, this blue furry puppet is talking about, you can't wait to get to the end. It's scary. But you know, at the end is this, this blue puppet. And y'all might remember the name of it. I don't. But I kind of feel like those of you that have held on at this point have gotten to the end of the big scary story. And now it's time for me to talk about what my true passion is, which is cooking. Now, this week's recipe is a version of Sicilian eggplant. And of course, I recreated it and put a little of my personal flair in here, as I do for every recipe. But I really try to make these recipes so that they can be shared by everyone and the average cook can cook them. So I'm going to go through this full recipe and I'm going to go through all the ingredients. And if you miss something or if you just want to go a little bit slower so that you can look over it yourself, then I'm going to post it in the notes uh, below. And for reference, this recipe, depending on how... Uh, how hungry your guys are, how many you're feeding, it'll feed four to eight people. The first ingredient is eggplants. We need four good plump eggplants. Now there's this Italian variety that I really like. It's kind of shaped like a bowl. Uh, and if you want to go all out, then go find that. But I'm going to tell you, I think you should just shop local. And if you're in the southern U.S. like I am, then Black Beauty is the most common one. Next, we need a pound of ground beef. Excuse me. Next, we need one pound of ground Italian sausage, a 4.5 ounce can of diced tomatoes, one half of a red onion, which you can go ahead and dice up, one chopped bell pepper, three minced cloves of garlic, two tablespoons of each of the, the, these herbs, freshly chopped basil, parsley, and oregano. You need a 24-ounce jar of Italian tomato sauce and a uh, cup of shredded mozzarella and half a cup of grated Parmesan. Now that we have all these ingredients together, we need to preheat the oven to 350 degrees. And in a large pot, boil enough water that you can submerge your eggplants. And while you're waiting for the water to boil, cut the eggplants in half and scoop out the insides. Leave about a half an inch of eggplant meat around the outside, around the edge, you know, to kind of give your bowl structure. Set aside 
half of the eggplant meat that you scooped out and chop the rest into little pieces. So once the water's come to a boil, we can add our eggplant halves to the pot. And instead of turning the heat down, we're gonna let it go back up to a boil and let everything boil for about five minutes. Uh, you wanna keep the eggplant submerged as much as you can. And when the eggplants are done, remove them from the pot and place the halves upside down to let the water run out. This is super, this is super, super important because you don't want soggy eggplants. Next, we're going to repeat that boiling process with the meat that you set aside, the part that you chopped up into small pieces. Now, the eggplant's good to go, so we're going to switch gears and we're going to heat two tablespoons of oil in a skillet over medium-high heat. And when the oil's ready, add your onion and let it simmer for three or four minutes. Make sure to keep an eye on it and stir it frequently so that they don't burn. Add your garlic in, put your bell pepper in, and let all that cook for a couple more minutes. Then put in your Italian sausage. After your meat's browned, stir in your tomato sauce, your tomatoes, that eggplant meat that we chopped up, and, and your herbs. Once everything's well incorporated, turn down the heat down, down to simmer and let it cook for about 10 more minutes and just stir it occasionally so it doesn't stick on the bottom. Now that our eggplant halves have had time to drain, we can go ahead and arrange them on a non-stick casserole dish. When the stove mixture is ready to go, remove it from the heat and stir in your cheeses. Stir it until everything is really nice and cheesy. Now it's time to put it together. Scoop the mixture into the eggplant halves, pop it into the oven for about 15 minutes. When it's done, you can garnish it with some fresh basil or oregano and make sure that it's piping hot when you're ready to serve it. That's good Sicilian comfort food. I'm Scott Parrish, your host, and I'd like to thank you for listening to Dying to Eat. I'd like to do that exit again. I've been your host, Scott Parrish, and I'd like to thank you for listening to Dying to Eat. This show is made possible by you viewers, and I really appreciate your support. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to hear more, look for new episodes every week on your favorite podcast platform, and make sure to drop us a like and follow the show to stay up to date on our latest episodes. Until next time, stay lively.